You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast, episode 158. I am your host, Victor Marks, and joining me is the inestimable, the inimitable, the one and only Neil Hughes. Victor, how are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm doing okay. Good. Has the buzzing in your head stopped? For now. At least until I take my next pills. There we go. It's it's always about using the right medication in the right order, mm-hmm. I guess. Well, one of the things that, that I'd have to say about that is it's also sometimes important to to hold back and to 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 lay off rather than charging forward. You know what I mean? <laughs> sometimes. You know, in, in order to be stable, in order to be reliable, in order to to be predictable, to to pull back and to to, to be on an even keel. And I say this not because I'm worried about the medication that you're on or not on, <laughs> but we were talking a lot offline about software stability and about some of the things that Apple's had to confront in the past mm-hmm. year. And when I, when I think back to stable systems, we, we all go back to Snow Leopard, right? We all sort of recall how that was the one OS X version that was just the most stable of all right. of them, right? And... I think that that was. It sometimes gets compared to the the Windows XP of of OS X, just because it was so long running and so so well thought out. You know, right? So that after a while, all of the bugs got worked out of right. it, more or less. The reason that I think we go back to that one is because that was the year that Steve Jobs got up and said, "Listen, we're going to delay releasing it because, and and we're going to cut features from it because we're going to make sure that it's right. stable." make sure that it does everything right. And, and sure, there were a few feature enhancements, but it was largely a, a version that represented stability as opposed to Lion that came after it and, and so forth. And so here we are, 10 years after the original iPhone, and we're looking at iOS 12 coming out. And iOS 12, next this com- coming later this year, 2018, is already being said to put features on hold and really focus on stability. Yeah, there were a pair of reports that came out this week claiming it. So, um, you know, nothing's ever a sure thing with a rumor, but this seems like it's pretty well sourced that um, there was, and even our own sources said that there was a strange meeting that took place where Apple called in his development team, um, something com- somewhat unusual. Craig Federi, who's the head of the um, software development in Apple, um, brought the team together and said, listen, guys, uh we're going to have to move some features back to iOS 13 or whatever they want to call it in 2019. Um, so there were some big things that they were planning on doing. Um, the, the biggest one of them was a, a rethink of the iPhone home screen. Um, you think about all the changes that have been made to the iPhone over the years and everything looks fresh and different and new, but you know, aside from 3d touch on icons and, you know, uh, swiping to get notification center, control center, whatever. The home screen has remained pretty much the same on the iPhone. Uh, we got a big update to the iPad home screen last year with the app dock, um, the ability to put tons of apps down there and, uh, you know, drag, drag and drop. drop to yeah, it. so a lot of exciting things that came on the iPad, but the iPhone has remained kind of the same. And so I guess internally Apple's working on some sort of a redesign of the home screen. I don't know what it would be. Um I have been thinking for years that I would like to see some sort of um, icons that update, but on a on a very controlled basis. So, you know, I don't want to unlock my phone and have a bunch of dancing icons. 
but um, I think like subtle updates to it, like for example, current temperature or something on the weather app would be nice. Um, I don't know what they. You mean like the calendar app does, where it changes yeah, the day or, for you? You know, there's the second hand moving on the clock and the clock showing the actual time on the clock app. Um, the risky run is a bunch of third party apps just flashing stuff at you and being obnoxious. So I don't know if you limit the, you know, you can only update your app icon once an hour or something like that. I don't know what the, what the restriction on that would be. That's something I would like to see. Um, but you know, it seems like such a minor thing who really cares at that point. Um, apparently whatever it is that they were working on, we're not going to get this year. Um, another one that they said that they're working on were uh, multiplayer games in AR kit. Um, again, uh, you know, I'm not really going to be, heartbroken that that's not coming this year. Um, and this is all going to allow Apple to um, spend a little bit more time to get some polish into iOS, get rid of some of the bugs and uh, fix some of the nagging problems that have been around for a little while now. Um, and But, but Neil, Neil, Apple are doomed. <laughs> They're doomed, doomed if they don't put multiplayer AR games in. Yeah, it's... I'm I'm throwing out the iPhone. I'm going to go grab my right. Nexus or a Pixel or something else. No, it, you're right. I mean, there's so many things that have been announced in the last year that you can't really use or they're not functional in any great way. Um, you know, AR kit, I don't think took off in the way that Apple or even myself expected. Um, that's not to say it's bad. It's just, you know, it's not um, the, the, the killer apps are not quite there yet. Um you know, they they opened up NFC with iOS 11, and where are you using it so far? Um, uh, features that they announced that haven't launched yet. Uh, I, iCloud messages uh, coming supposedly in iOS 11.3 now. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that they're well, they're kind of paving the way for the future, or or setting up, or or trying to do, or whatever that haven't quite clicked yet. Um, even the HomePod is going to ship without AirPlay 2 support, and we don't even have any AirPlay 2 speakers on the market yet. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of uh, things that were announced last year that didn't make the deadlines that Apple thought they were going to be able to make internally. Um, and hopefully a refocus this year will allow them to catch up uh, and not be so behind the eight ball. You were talking about Snow Leopard and um, and how that was a you know opportunity for Apple to pause i feel like the mac has in many ways kind of been on pause for a few years now like every major update that has come out in the last like two three years for mac um doesn't really add a ton of new features or anything like that there's a little bit of polish here and there um and i I think that's more so reflective of the fact that you know the most progress and innovation and, and just straight up sales are coming from the iphone and ipad so, you know, Apple's attention is not so much on the Mac. That's not to poo-poo what has gone on with the Mac. I think that eGPU support um, in High Sierra is the coolest thing that they've done in years with the Mac, but it's still in beta, and you still can't, you know, they're still updating it with every every beta that comes out. So, so it's a debut this spring. I'm very excited about it. But, uh, yeah, it's just another example of something that is not quite ready for prime time. Can I talk about sure. the Mac for a moment? All right, so here's here's what the Mac is for. Here Here's who the Mac is for, and here's why the Mac is developed the way that it is and why it has stagnated, as you've said, in, in some ways. You know, eGPU and the development for augmented reality and uh, metal on the Mac 
is is not a small right. achievement, and I don't want to no. minimize it, but it's not a user-facing achievement in the same way that, say, the Photos application is, where Photos was brought over to replace iPhoto, and they just basically brought and it over terrible. from iOS. Be that as it may, <laughs> the reason that development is like this, the reason why that stuff was brought over was in part to make it a little bit easier for Apple's developers to only have to worry about fewer code bases, right? Uh, instead of having them focus on photos on the iOS devices as well as iPhoto on Mac, and maybe have that be two separate teams that are not working at the same purpose, it's now an aligned group that has the same sense of purpose, the same goals, the same kind of requirements for the software. And yes, the Mac is an afterthought. That's fine. It's at least helping keep Apple aligned on what they're trying to accomplish, which is not a bad thing. And that does have benefits for the end user mm. eventually. The, the Mac exists for two people. The Mac exists for developers and, and that breaks out into augmented reality developers as well as it breaks out into the people developing apps for iOS, because you, you have a difficult time developing for anything for iOS without having a Mac, right? You can't get into the app store without a Mac, without Xcode. The Mac is also for people who are old, like you and I, who have used a computer, a traditional computer with a keyboard for ages and aren't ready or able or easily adaptable in our workflows to get on board with an iOS only mm -hmm. kind of workflow. You know, we need having a keyboard, we need having a trackpad, and we need the applications that that lets us have. We need the uh, the ability to have multiple tabs open of different windows of different things like this switching back and forth. And we work this old fashioned way as opposed to a full screen kind of thing with a little light touch of drag and drop that iPad mm -hmm. lets us have now. You know, for, for kids coming up that have never bothered using what you'd call a traditional computer with a keyboard and a trackpad or mouse, uh, this is fine. They learn all the things they want to do on it, and, and they adapt just fine, and they use it as a computer. But for people like you and I, that's a little harder to move our workflows around. There, you know, there are people who are podcasting, just like we're doing right now, who said, you know, I need to get a cheap computer because I don't feel comfortable doing it on mm -hmm. an iOS device, which I get. You know, there are, when, when we're writing an article and you have 20 different tabs open as you're sourcing for an article, doing that on iOS is not easy. I feel like we're kind of beating around the bush here, though, because the, the, the most interesting thing that we're expecting this year has not been cut from iOS 12 or Mac OS 10.14 or whatever. And that expectation is that Apple is going to, depending on semantics and depending on what report you read, um, either make it easier for um, iOS apps to be ported over to the Mac or to just straight up let iOS apps run on the Mac. Right. And there are a number of different ways that that could work. And, you know, there, there are different UI kits and app kits for, for how apps mm. are, are built, you know, and, and so that's... That would be necessary for, for both emulation and for running. And the, the second thing is that we know that there's the T-Series chip that's being put into Macs. It's in the iMac Pro. It's in, in other Macs. It's coming into other Macs. And this is a story we were going to get to. And having a chip like that in there means that they could potentially just run, straight out run iOS mm -hmm. applications on it. The 
thing that that does is it, it again means that they don't have to worry about the success or failure of the Mac App Store because then they just have the one iOS App Store. And they simply have to work on convincing developers to bother to compile their stuff to, so that it runs properly on a Mac as well. Whether that means having a new storyboard for the UI or it means simply just here's your, I, here's your window and your iPad stuff runs within it. We don't know. It's, but, but it also takes the pressure off people to develop for Mac because now you have one development target, you use the Mac to develop for it, and it runs your iPad apps. That has the downside of potentially crippling what it means to use a Mac, but it has the upside of, of unifying having that code more apps base available and, and having more apps available and being able to migrate people to iOS devices. So if, if your apps that you use on a Mac all are iPad compatible then at some point, you know, given a couple of hardware cycles where you change hardware, maybe the next time you don't buy a new Mac when you need to replace your Mac. Or your, Mac, your you data and information are more easily stored between devices in the cloud, shared, synced, all that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, this this story is very odd because it broke a few months ago and it's been re-reported ever since. And it came back up again this week because of these rumors about iOS 12 features being delayed and, and follow-up reports subsequently said that uh, this project Marzipan, Marzipan as it's called, uh, is not going to be cut from Mac OS 10.14. Um, Apple is still going to allow this unified code base to happen. Uh, but uh, Axios, which was the one that did the story uh, this week, reported it as running iPad apps on your Mac, which is different from having unified code base to port apps over. Um, when the story first now, I want to I want to interject here. I want to interject the reporter for Axios. Mm-hmm. That's uh, Ina Freed, or Ina Freed. I forget. I know I've met her, and I still I it's it's shameful how I forget <laughs> which way to pronounce her name. But but I let's say I said Ina a second ago. I'll say Ina now. So I've met her, and she used to work right. for and the Recode. Wall Street Journal. She worked along and and Recode. She worked alongside Walt Mossberg. Right. She worked alongside Katie Barrett. And, and this is not a small thing. This is a reputable journalist who wrote for reputable sources, re- reputable outlets. She is no small fry just reporting know, on rumors. Yeah. She knows what she's doing. And and so so this is something it's, to take it's into difficult consideration. Because I ran into this too with commenters on our site that took issue with the way that I initially reported this story. Because I said that, you know, it would make it easier to run iPhone apps on your Mac. And people were saying, well, you're not, you know, you're not going to be able to run iPhone apps on your Mac. And it's like, well... I have limited number of words that I can put in a headline to convey to you what this means. And I have to make it so that somebody who doesn't understand what a unified code base gets the headline and gets the gist of what's happening. So, um, you know, I, I don't know what is behind the reporting on this or even behind the rumors on it. Um, I just know that it's kind of been all over the place. And um, I suspect personally that Apple will make it easier, if not extremely easy, to port your iPad apps to the Mac. But I don't see them in a situation where, like, the iPhone um, apps on the first iPad automatically run on the iPad. Okay. The, the, the quote here that we put in here says, The signature new feature for the Mac, the ability to run iPad apps, is a significant undertaking that adds a high degree of complexity to this year's OS release. That, right. That's what Freed wrote. And... You know, there are, as I said, there's app kit and UI kit. And so that difference has to be reconciled, whether it's reconciled by simply compiling app kit for OS 10 and running it on Intel and having one talk to one library and one talk to the other is one thing. Um, and I'm probably oversimplifying it. And I apologize to all <laughs> of our developer listeners. 
the, the the question is, what do you do with that? So then do you have to, as I said, make new storyboards so that you have a new UI that's suitable for the Mac? Or do you just have a big window that runs what it would look like on the iPad screen? It's it's not entirely certain to me. Um, but you said before, you whenever you go into an Apple store, all of the displays, all of the signage, all of the, the Macs are running everything in full screen. Yeah, I, I don't think that they're going to have iPad apps just running on the Mac. I think that developers are going to, if they want to potentially, basically just have their iPad app on the Mac if they opt in. But I don't see a situation where... Like there was no, when the, when the first iPad launched and even now there was no like opt out saying, I don't want my iPhone app to run on an iPad. Like it just did. And it ran in a blown up mode and it was terrible, but it was Apple's way of just getting more apps available for the iPad. So I don't see iPad apps being forced onto the Mac or running by default. I think that if developers want to opt in, that's fine. Um, And I think that that ultimately is a good and a bad thing. Because if you run an iPad app on your Mac, you know, people will say stuff about how it's designed for touch, blah, blah, blah. But I would argue that taking touch uh, interfaces and then putting a cursor over them is a a way to go with less friction versus taking a non-touch interface and trying to make it touch. Um, The target points on a non-touch interface like Mac OS just don't work on a touch interface. They just don't work. Uh, But in reverse, I mean, they look a little weird because all the buttons are big and stuff. Uh, but it certainly works. Um, so I could see that working now. Th- so the good side of that is obviously now you're on a Mac, a bunch of apps that you use before, you know, people who have been clamoring maybe for Facebook on their Mac or whatever. Um, now they have it. Data's synced. Everything's easy. You get a new Mac, you log in, uh, downloads all your stuff, iCloud data sync, everything's, you know, in the keychain. it's all there. Bam. Good to go. That's cool. You have now potentially, hundreds of thousands of new apps that you would never had access before to before on your Mac. The The bad side is the apps kind of stink compared to those that would be created specifically for a Mac. Um, that's if you use a native Mac app is going to be a better experience, something specifically designed for the Mac. I, I Maybe Apple's hoping long-term that will get people to kind of dip their toe into Mac development because as it stands right now, um, Mac app store apps are not particularly great already. So maybe Apple's just kind of tossing their hands up and going, Oh, what do we got to lose? Um, and you know, it's a trade off between very high quality apps of which you're never going to have, have a ton of, um, versus a bunch of decent slash mediocre apps that give users more options. And for those coming over from an iPad or an iPhone, there's some familiarity there as well. Yeah. I, I feel like this is a multi-year transition to move people who are not developers either for AR or for um, Xcode to an iOS device. And I feel like this is a multi-year path that eventually puts Xcode on that iOS device. We have to get there self-hosted. That is, you know, you can create apps on the device that you're going to use them on. And that was always true of Mac. And that's going to become true of iOS at some point. Xcode for iPad Pro. Why not Final Cut Pro? You you already have Swift Playgrounds. No, there should be. Why not? So... So that's what I think this is a step towards is there's sort of this unification of code base, getting the two to grow together 
and then one end of the tree lives and one end of the yeah, tree Yeah, you know, you think about the stuff that you can do on an iPad now that you couldn't do before. And certainly the Files app was a huge step in the right direction. You know, before I didn't really have a place to save somewhere. You try to open it and it would, didn't know what to do with it. Um, if you were dealing with attachments, you know, other than photos, uh, iOS did not know how to handle a lot of it very well. Um, now, nowadays, you don't have as much of a problem. The Apple Files app that solved a lot of that and that's a step in the right direction it's good and we just need to keep going in that direction yeah and you know in in talk of unifying code bases we have another story here that i know you don't care a whole lot about but it's it's one of the ones that's uh resonated with me and it's the microsoft office story so i'm gonna give it 10 seconds and you'll forgive me the microsoft office updated office for iphone and ipad with real-time collaboration and drag and drop they also at the same time issued an update for office 2016 for mac which gains that same collaboration feature. What's important about this is not necessarily the small features that each one of these different versions gained. What's important about this is that this is the first time in years that the code base for Windows and the code base for Mac have unified. They, They were the same 20 or 30 years ago, but they have finally synced back up again. And so now it's the same code base for both Mac and for Windows. And it's the first time ever that it's the same code base for Mac, Windows, Android, and yeah, iOS. That's pretty cool. And that's a huge engineering effort. They deserve to be applauded for it. And it means that none of these platforms is a second-class citizen to any of the others, that using it on a Mac will work the same as using it on Windows will work the same as using it on iOS or Android, provided that obviously you have the Office 365 subscription, which is what they require on mobile devices for the full feature access. I I think that's a big deal. You know, Microsoft has been trying for years to to unify things, and they failed when they they lost right. mobile. Right, Windows Phone and Windows Phone for tablets didn't work. Still has a one percent market share in Italy surface. as of uh, statistics that came out this week for Windows Phone. You know, I it's it's another one of those platforms where I liked where they were going with it and I enjoyed using it, but they, they made some critical late. errors. Too little, too late, and they hurt themselves with their developer community. And they did that specifically because you, you remember years ago when Apple added the uh, the over seventeen tag to the iStore to the App Store, where where they at first had apps that pretty much everything right. had to be suitable for everyone, and then they decided it was okay to give an explicit tag to to say that some content was suitable right. for users over the age of seventeen. And Microsoft also started out with their app store being suitable for everyone and then had to add that tag. And they made a critical error that when it was time to add that tag, they required every developer who'd uploaded a binary to re-upload a new binary with that tag. And what they should have done is simply allowed developers to add that tag, whether or not they needed it, to their app store listing. But by requiring everyone to do work, this was a problem. And the second thing was that if you didn't do it, they took you down off the app store. So they, they kneecapped themselves by removing lots of apps from their own app store. You know, when, when you are the number three platform and it's a battle between first and second, you don't want to kneecap yourself in the process. And they did. Right. So thanks for letting <laughs> me get that one. And I, I like the idea of, of that story. I like the idea of these things unifying because, you know, you, you don't want to end up in a situation where your platform of choice is the one that's the second class citizen. And, you know, while iOS is certainly not that for apps and app stores, it, it, you know, Apple very much was for many, many years leading up to OS X. And, you know, I, I, I want to make sure that, that, you know, if I have to move platforms for whatever reason, that I'm moving to one that has the same kind of thing so the workflows right. remain the same.
And I, and I do this regularly. I come through the Google Play Store and I look for apps that are the same as or equivalents of the ones that I use on iOS and I buy them just because I want those developers to know that, you know, even if I don't have to change platforms today, that I support them making it for these things. That's smart. Yeah. You know, I, I use, for example, I use IA Writer on Mac and on iOS all the time. And so I've purchased that from Android because I want to make sure it's there. You know, I, I I do this for one password. I do this for all these things, just because it's it's important to me that that developers know that they're being supported. Good for you, good Samaritan. I want to talk a little bit about entertainment, right? You 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 know, I've talked about entertainment specifically with Apple's moves into content and uh, you know things around Apple TV as well as they're developing their own streaming service. Yeah, you ran a story that I found was very cool. Uh, Steven Soderbergh called app shooting on Apple's iPhone a game changer, and he wants to use it for all of his future movies. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. Um, you know, Steven Soderbergh, we've talked about him before. Um, he's he shot this movie called Unsane that's coming out in March. Um, and he's always been kind of an experimental director. Um, he'll work with uh, people who are not actors kind of in their first role. Um, he will. Uh, shoot it on conventional ways. He he was one of the first to you know shoot digital on a mainstream film, and he shoots on an iPhone, but not or at least shot on the, uh, this movie Unsane on an iPhone, not not for gimmick reasons to try to you know get people to talk about it. It just was a matter of convenience. It was better for him and the way that he shoots. Um, and we had run a story before talking about how he was able to do things like do quick edits on set and show his actors how scenes were going to look you know in real time. Uh, but he's finished this movie now and it's coming out soon and he's putting it out through his own production company. And he gave an interview and, and just talked about how it was a game changer for him and what a big deal it was and how he sees himself just using an iPhone to shoot future films. Uh, he shot this last summer, so I'd have to guess he shot it on an iPhone 7 Plus because that was the best camera app Apple had at the time. Uh, and he was talking about, you know, the 4K resolution on that camera. He was seen it blown up to, you know, 50 feet tall in a theater and it looks great. And he said, you wouldn't know that it wasn't shot on a, you know, red camera or anything like that. The 4k capabilities of it were outstanding. I've seen it 40 foot tall. He said, it looks like velvet. This yeah, is so a game it's, changer it's pretty cool to see. <clears throat> I've been trying to get in touch with him or his production studio, um, uh, to find out exactly what his equipment was that he used. And unfortunately I haven't been able to get an answer. I reached out to them again this week, but I mean, I'm sure he's using a gimbal and maybe some sort of a lens. I would be very curious to find out what software he's using. Um, I'm guessing he's not editing it on iMovie on iOS, but uh, you know, it, it <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, fil- filmic right. would be a good example. And when we ran this story, it, it obviously put, we posted to Twitter as well. And on Twitter, um, uh, I think it's Sebastian DeWitt who who writes Halide, and he he commented on it, saying that now he's going to have to make a version of Halide suitable for video, because this is a perfect example of of what it should be used for. And I mean, you have built-in stabilization already that makes it pretty smooth on your iPhone. You add a gimbal to the mix, um, you get good software, um, you get a good external microphone, and well, you don't use an external mic. What you end up doing typically, I mean, classically, the way to do this is that you get uh, a, an audio recorder, a field audio recorder, like a, a Zoom F4 or a Zoom F8, and you connect your microphones to that, and that records digitally with timecode. And then you have the iPhone device recording with timecode also, and then you have to sync those two timecodes so that your audio well, matches. Well, that's what I mean by your, an external mic. Video I mean, properly. don't use the microphone on your iPhone, but anyhow. 
Um, yeah, I mean, obviously there are going to be certain accessories and, and things that you'll need to get the quality that you want. Um, you can't just hold up an iPhone and shoot. Uh, but it, to have that as the centerpiece of, of shooting, uh, it's pretty, pretty cool and pretty exciting. Absolutely. And, you know, we've got some great photograph applications for, for iOS. You know, there's, um, well, gosh, there's Halide for one. There's, uh, Filmic, there's uh, ProCam is another good one. And, and I've used those three for shooting stills. Uh, Filmic also does video. Having a halide for video would be really cool. And, and that's made by Sebastian DeWitt. He was an ex-Apple designer and Ben Sandofsky, who's a former Twitter engineer. And I, you know what I, what I really enjoy is when obviously very talented people come together to make really useful tools like that with a lot of love. Yeah. You know, I, I would think that, that would be the kind of thing that a Soderbergh or, or other director would be using, would would want to use. You, you put that together with some good lenses. Um, you know, the the anamorphic lens that Moondog Labs makes, for example, was the mm-hmm. one that was used to shoot Tangerine, I yep. think it was a few years ago. You remember that? Um, and we saw the, uh, the Bentley commercial that yep. was shot using Beast Grip, and we yep. reviewed the Beast Grip Pro a while back. You know, all, all of these things come together, and it's really impressive when when you put these kinds of tools affordably in, in the hands of everyone. Now, also in the entertainment space, you know, we, we talked about how great it was that the Amazon Prime Video app finally came out for Apple TV. One of the things that's been sort of happening and and happening slow motion has been the replacing of cable networks with these streaming services, and. You know, Hulu's got live TV. Amazon is pushing their live stuff within Prime a little bit. Um, the the only one who doesn't really have live is Netflix, and YouTube TV is a service that is is going to offer a cable kind of lineup, and it's it's thus far been impossible to view that without AirPlay. But a YouTube rep said on uh, last Thursday that they're going to do a TVOS app. Yeah, I mean, I I've kind of. Uh, look the other way on a lot of these uh, streaming services for personal use for a while, just because a lot of times they're expensive. They didn't have a lot of the channels you want. A lot of times they did not include uh, local network broadcasts. Um, a lot of times they didn't have DVR capabilities. Um, they were missing key channels here and there. Uh, you know, PlayStation view was the best one for a while, but it was like 75, $80 a month or something. So when we ran this story, I was curious and I went back and checked to see, you know, what kind of improvements have been made. Um, and now I'm considering uh, ditching cable. I, I, I hadn't been considering ditching cable before because there were just too many hurdles for it to overcome. But I looked today and I can get, um, through direct TV now, cause I'm already an AT&T wireless subscriber. So I got to see if they offer any discounts for like bundling it. But through AT&T's uh, DirecTV Now, I can get like 60 channels. It includes your regional sports networks for the $50 package. Um, and it, depending on your market, I'm in New York, it includes your uh, local broadcast networks. And they have a cloud-based DVR function that's in beta right now, coming out of beta this spring. Um, I know YouTube TV has unlimited cloud-based DVR recording. It restores your recordings for up to nine months. and You can record as many shows as you want at once. Um, and they do uh, over-the-air broadcast networks as well. Uh, the one area where Hulu TV and YouTube TV are kind of lacking from what I found is they don't offer access to regional sports networks. 
So if you watch your local hockey or basketball team or baseball team, um, and they are on like a, you know, Fox Mm. affiliate locally or whatever, Fox sports, um, then you're kind of out of luck with those services. So you'd be better off with direct TV now, but those little issues are all starting to be resolved. And I was doing the math and looking at the comparison. It's like, well, I have spectrum right now and it's terrible. Um, the picture quality is, is awful. Um, they use a lot of compression on that. I can only stream to my iPad or um, even my Mac if I'm at home on my Wi-Fi. Um, I can't access my DVR from the cloud. I'm limited to two recordings at once. You know, it's there are just so many problems that it's like, why why would I stick around with it? Okay, we're back. I lost you there for a minute. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, one of the things that I've been doing here is I, I got a device called a Tableau TV. Have you heard of this? Yeah. Yeah, I have one as well. Do you? Okay. Yes. Uh, so I have the 64 gig dual tuner um, device. Is that the one you've got? I've got one where you bring your own hard drive. Oh, okay. This one has a, a USB port for that, but it's got it's got two tuners and 64 gig built in, and it works with an Apple TV app. And so you connect your antenna to it and you view over the air stations. It has a guide and you subscribe to the guide data. And I can view using either of those two tuners. I can DVR and have it stored internally or, or like you say, on the drive and view that on Apple TV and view it across, you know, how many I've got on my network on Wi-Fi. It's pretty sweet if you're only interested in viewing those local channels. If you've got a, a subscription package that takes care of the the national channels and you need those regionals, this is one yeah, of the ways. It's to gotten solve a that. lot better. You know, I'm I'm paying $165 a month to Spectrum for cable and internet, um, and I don't even watch most of the channels. And the internet's slower than I would like, and the quality on the picture is terrible. And if I have more than two programs I want to watch at once while it's being DVR, you know, something live, like, and then two programs in the background, I can't do it. Um, it's awful. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I think I'm done. You know, I looked at it today, the YouTube TV thing, and I was like, oh, it's a lot better than I thought it was. This is better than it was before. And so now it's like, I'm looking at the price, you know, 35 bucks for the entry level one, 50 bucks for the one with the regional sports on direct TV. Now I'm looking at what I can cut from cable and just get an internet only plan. And it's like, I could actually save money and get better service. I could stream my uh, television to my phone wherever I want to go. That was something I used to use a uh, Sling TV for, the, the Sling Box. Um, I used to use that so I could mm-hmm. uh, stream stuff while I was on the go. I wouldn't have to even worry about with hardware like that anymore. It would all be included in my subscription. It would be legal and fine. The thing to pay attention to is that when you go to an internet-only plan, the cost of the internet goes up a little bit. Oh, it goes up a lot. It's a ripoff. It's a yeah. joke. That's why I'm paying right now for Spectrum for a home phone line that I've never used because they bundle it and make it cheaper so that you have a home phone line. That's how they That's how they get you on this crap. The only reason I know I have a home phone line is because I get a notification on my cable box when a phone call comes in because some spam call is coming. I mean, like, I don't need a phone line. I don't want one. But, you know, they force all this crap on you. Like, they give me a, um, a cable modem and and uh, router combo. And I have to go in and, like, troubleshoot with it to disable all the router functions because I don't want to use it. But because they subsidize it, they charge me 15 bucks a month for the cable modem router, but then I get a $15 credit every month. And then it's like, oh, well, you know, you just get lazy. And to return this stuff or get it swapped out, you know, it's crazy. I have to go into Manhattan to drop this thing off to get a replacement box, get to deal with them on the phone and all that. Finally, what I mean, their, their whole customer service business is just, oh, you just throw your hands up and give up because it's like you're just so frustrated and you don't have any other options. 
they're supposed to build files in my network and they haven't. So I'm just waiting on that. Yeah. So I've got AT&T fiber now and Google's digging up my yard for Google fiber, but I had uh, time Warner cable who got eaten by spectrum. Right. And for years I, I bought my own cable modem and I didn't deal with having to return their equipment at all. And I had better service because I was just using a, a solid good modem on my own and not dealing with whatever they they were sending out. I used a TiVo years ago and Comcast charged me for the cable card I had to plug in, even though oh, the FCC yeah. legally said they weren't allowed to do that. They just didn't care. And it was like, I tried to argue with them and they'd go, well, oh, well. So when, um, when Spectrum bought Time Warner, I have a 200 megabit down plan and, uh, Spectrum did not offer 200 megabit down while Time Warner did. And so my plan was grandfathered in or whatever. And so I had an extended cable package with some channels that I just haven't watched in a while. And so I was just going to try to cut my plan. So I called them up and I said, hey, listen, I just want to get rid of that channel package. I want to keep everything else the same. And they said, well, we no longer offer the 200 megabit down package for internet. So if you make any changes to your plan, then you have to adjust your internet plan as well. But if you don't make any changes to your plan, then we can keep it all the same because you're grandfathered in. And I said, okay, well, what are my other internet options? They said 100 megabit or 300 megabit. And I said, what if I upgrade to the 300 megabit? Well, then it would end up being more expensive than just canceling the channel package, even without the channel package. And I was like, well, this is insane. You're asking me if I want to like get rid of a channel package, I have to increase my, my bill or lower my internet speed. And they're like, yeah. And I was like, well, then I'm just leaving everything the same until Fios comes in. And then once Fios gets installed, you guys can go. See ya. I don't need to do business with a company yeah. like that. That's that's just like robbery. Right. That's just treating your your customers like complete garbage. But they Obviously, do that, that's which is why I'm just happy to cut the cord do. at this point. It was and something I looked into for years, something I wanted to do, something I was like, yeah, I, I wish I could, I wish I could, I wish I could. But the 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 stuff just never aligned. Now it seems like it's starting to align, and I'm just ready to say, hey, goodbye. Yeah. So here's here's my view on what's going to happen. First of all, all of these companies have to look at making their own stream service. The, the AT&T DirecTV model, that's DirecTV Now. See, the product naming is so hard, especially when they make it confusing like this. So DirecTV Now. Well, and they still advertise to you as DirecTV, which is satellite. And then if you go to their website, you're trying to figure out, it's like, wait, I don't know which one's which. Yeah. It's, like, it's like HBO Go versus HBO Now. Okay. Right. So AT&T is doing that. Verizon's doing some of that with their Fios, but they're going to end up doing that for everyone over wireless, especially once 5G wireless kicks in. Uh, and Spectrum is going to end up having to do 5G wireless right. and, and get off of cable as well and do their own package for stuff that way. And it's going to be streaming from everyone because that's where the value is. If they don't do that and they don't provide – and they're going to be up against the cell phone carriers providing home internet over 5G wireless as well. They'll give you a modem that receives 5G signal. And you'll put that in your house and you won't have to deal with Spectrum's cable. Or well, this AT&T's is where all this of bad stuff. stuff these cable companies have done is going to come back to bite them. Because if you've if given the choice between dealing yes. with AT&T, who nobody likes, or Spectrum, who everybody hates, you're going to go with the one you don't like versus the one that you hate. <laughs> so it's like, that's my choice right yes. now. It's like, well, you know, I'd like to go with YouTube TV or Hulu TV, but I can't because they don't offer regional sports. My only option is DirecTV Now or PlayStation View, and PlayStation View is more expensive. Um, and DirecTV Now has good support for Apple TV. And it's like, well, yeah, it's AT&T, and they kind of stink. But it's not Spectrum because Spectrum is like the devil, and Comcast is like the devil, and all these companies are terrible. And then AT&T is like, well, yeah, you kind of stink, but you're at least not Spectrum. So, you know... it. it yeah, they, they stink and, and they're and, incompetent, but and they're so it's not like, Spectrum. Who's going to want to sign up for a Spectrum 5G internet service? 
Honestly, like who, when Comcast gets in that business, who's going to go out of their way to say, yes, I well, really want it. And Xfinity if you're, so if you're bad, already an at and like they've, they've, they've garnered so much ill will from consumers. That's why these companies have to keep rebranding and changing their name. You know, Spectrum used to be Charter. Uh, Xfinity is Comcast. You know, they're, they're always changing their name and rebranding because nobody wants to be associated with these companies. Nobody wants to do business with them. And it's, it's the most surefire way for them to have you forget about all the bad experiences you've had with them before. But at some point, this is all going to come back to bite them. You know, Spectrum can rebrand as whatever 5G internet service. But if they don't change the way that they've done stuff and, and people remember the way that it's been, you're just going to stick with AT&T. Well, and AT&T already has you as a cell phone customer. And even though number portability is a thing, changing between cell phone carriers is, is right. there's a lot of inertia there. You're mildly difficult to do. And so if they just have already have you captured as a wireless customer, they already have you and your wife and your family on them. And they come back and say, by the way, we can give you home internet with 5G wireless. And all we got to do is give you a modem yeah. and you're on. Right. You're going to say yes. Yeah. You're you know what? All these cable yes. companies are in big trouble and good. Good. They deserve it. <laughs> Neil Hughes. <laughs> hey, you know, you could be, we talk about Apple. They're the largest business on the planet. There's a way to do it right. You know, um, AT&T for as bad as they are, you don't have to wait on hold as long as you do if you call Spectrum or anybody else. You don't have as many issues with your bill as you do with a cable company. They're not as mysterious with their billing as a cable company is. I mean, this cable. Let me stop you right there. Stop you right there. The reason that I'm not an AT&T customer for wireless at this very moment is because around the launch of the iPhone 4, when FaceTime was becoming a thing, AT&T said, those of you who have iPhone unlimited plans, right. we're going to change the definition of the word unlimited right. and FaceTime is not going to be a part of it. And it took them a year of fighting with the FCC right. to hammer out what unlimited really meant. And it was at that point that I said, you know what, forget it. And I moved to Verizon. Because I didn't want to have the idea of having an unlimited plan and yeah, not being able to use the data. Yeah, that stuff leaves a bad taste in your mouth, absolutely. AT&T has an atrocious history of doing stuff like that. All wireless carriers do. Even now, AT&T doesn't charge DirecTV Now stuff towards your data cap, which is consumer-friendly, but also in violation of net neutrality. Not that that's the law anymore. Um, uh, T-Mobile does the yeah. same thing. Um, so, you know, I, I think that... Um, I think that wireless companies across the board um, have done pretty terrible things, but none of them are as bad as cable companies. None. Yeah. Never challenge worse. Worse finds a way. They've gotten better. They've gotten, they've gotten better. The, the wireless companies used to be way worse than they are right now. The cable companies are just as bad as they've always been. If a cable company screws up your bill and you want to call them and pay off whatever you owe them, you know, because they their automatic payment system or whatever didn't work, you could never pay it off right now. It has to wait until the next month's bill. You know why? Because they never want you to know what your actual bill is. If you try to look at the bill, you have bundled services, you have discounts that get thrown in, and it's never really clear what you're paying for. And then after a year, it goes up, but you're not really sure what went up or how or why it went up. And then when your bill adjusts and you owe more the next month because it wasn't paid properly, then the next bill month it goes up, but then the next month it goes down because then you overpaid because of the adjustment. That's all part of the shell game that they play. You never really know what you're paying until you're like a year into it. Then you call them and then you complain and they offer you another discount and then it takes a month for it to set in and you overpaid the month before. So then the next month comes in even lower and the next one goes up and you know, you got a yo-yo of a bill and that's by design. Like th there's, there's no reason for it to work that way. But when you see that every cable company does it, even though they're not the same company, when you see that you have the same BS with spectrum 
or Time Warner or Comcast or Bright House or anybody else that you do business with, Charter, whatever they want to call themselves today, when you see that it's always the same thing, that's by design. They're doing it because they know that they can get money out of you when you do it, and it works. But when as soon as consumers can walk away from that and say, we're I done f- with your BS, they're all screwed. <laughs> I feel like Don't get me started about cable companies. I could go on for a whole episode. <laughs> it's too late. You already have. And that brings us to another end of a fantastic wireless. No. I'm going to take a small moment here, and I want to thank our sponsors. Pitney Bowes is the industry leader in mailing and shipping solutions. No matter what you send or how often, Pitney Bowes has the solution that perfectly fits your needs. You can weigh, print, mail, and save. You and your business will save time and money when you print postage. And you won't need to wait in line at the post office or worry about putting the correct amount of postage on your letter or package. And USPS mailing and shipping costs have already gone up. They went up on January 21st. But you're going to save $0.03 per letter because you're using a Pitney Bowes solution. And those are discounts that are just simply not available at the post office. You, you, when you're sending a letter or a package, you'll be paying less and saving money because you're using a Pitney Bowes solution. Plans start at $5 a month. And for our listeners, Pitney Bowes is offering a free trial, so you're sure to find the solution that's right for you and your business. Visit pb.com slash insider to learn more and try it for free. Terms apply. See site for details. That's pb.com slash insider. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. I, I know we talked about, you know, the the coincidence of, of what looks like sort of a train crash where, where iOS and, and macOS are coming together. But these three Macs that are coming with the T-Series security chips... Does that mean that a shift to an Apple CPU is inevitable? I, I think that, um, as I've said before, uh, the lower end Macs will inevitably have uh, systems primarily powered, solely powered by an Apple built chip. And on the high end ones, they'll have a coprocessor. And I think this is the start of it. I, I don't think you're going to see anytime soon, if not ever, uh, a MacBook Pro with a Apple chip. I think that... Um, the need for raw horsepower on a professional grade machine makes it a little difficult and Apple and their design efforts while powerful are focused on consumer oriented things. So if Apple wants to stay in the pro market, they're going to have to stay with Intel chips for the foreseeable future. But I also think in the foreseeable future, entry level Macs such as the 12 inch MacBook, if they get the price on that down to $999 with an A series chip, I think that will sell gangbusters. Cool. Uh, small business centric services provider Volusion is announcing a buy now button for merchants and they're using Apple Pay to do it. And this is cool for me because, you know, we, we saw the announcement that said that one out of every two businesses is now Apple Pay compatible. Right. And the idea of bringing Apple Pay to the web is, is delivering on the promise of the reason that we put Touch ID on an iPad and the reason that there's Touch ID on a Mac makes it simpler and easier to go ahead and check out for stuff. Yeah, I, I, I never heard of this company, so I don't know how big of a deal it is, but it's a step in the right direction. I, I'd put it equivalent to, you know, mid-sized bank signing up for Apple Pay. Right. One of the things that I think about is the death of PayPal. You know, PayPal is currently a um, $162 billion company, something like this. But PayPal has split ways with eBay, and eBay is going elsewhere for their payment processing. PayPal's other big business is handling payments for small companies and businesses and, uh, and person-to-person transactions. With Apple Pay Cash, person-to-person gets sorted out for many people, not everyone necessarily. And so things like this encroach upon that that business-to-business or business-to-consumer thing. Yep. And it can't happen soon enough. 
Absolutely. Uber updated their app, and their app has disabled compatibility with Apple Maps extensions, which means that if you're trying to hail a ride within Apple's map, uh, Apple Maps, you, you're out of luck. It also has an impact on the Siri integration because that Apple Maps extensions really comes as a part of SiriKit. And so that's got an impact. When something like this happens, it also will affect your use of Uber through a HomePod, let's say, hmm. because this is SiriKit and that's the way it works is that when you're using, say, a HomePod, for example, and tell the HomePod to hail you a ride, it's going to touch on SiriKit and integrate with Uber. And if that's broken, you're out of luck. You'll be taking a lift. I think the more interesting um, app update that broke, while that one was disappointing and, and that shouldn't be happening, the more interesting one was Slack deleting their Apple Watch app. Yes. And and people were using this for direct messages. And, you know, I suppose if you were on the watch that was an LTE watch, it was really handy for that. Uh, but they've gone ahead and pulled it out. Yeah, th they say that you can still do everything when connected to an iPhone through the notifications that come in. And that may be true. But again, if you have an LTE watch and you want to do stuff on the go um, and not have your phone near you, you need a native app. So, yeah, that is problematic. And that's really one of the questions is, you know, what what is the value of the watch and what belongs on the watch versus what does not? Do I need to have Amazon Prime shopping on the watch? Mm, no. But something like Slack, where it's a messaging app, there's a real value for that. Yeah, you're at the gym, you get an important work notification, you left your phone behind, you want to respond really quick. I, I agree with that. Um, and as the watch gets better and better battery life and eventually becomes an all-day LTE device where you don't have to have your phone on you at all, having apps like this is going to be essential because you can't have it to be dependent on your phone at that point. Absolutely. All right. We're going to be back in just a moment with – we're going to come back with all of the news from the Apple earnings call, and uh, we'll see you back there then. I'm just going to record the the last the outgoing ad copy, and okay. we can record the the end of the episode at that point too. But okay, this episode is brought to you by Pitney Bowes. No matter what you send or how often, Pitney Bowes has your sending solution. Print postage from your office and take advantage of special discounts such as saving three cents per letter versus the price of a stamp. Plans start as low as five dollars per month. Visit pb.com/insider to learn more and sign up for a free trial. That's pb.com/insider. Terms apply. See site for details. All right, let's call it here and pick back up later. Yeah, hopefully the banging and stuff is done and the cat will calm down because between the two of them, I've just been like hoping you would talk more and muting. I'm just trying to like, because we were going to have to keep okay. stopping. They're, they're banging again now. And I'm just, so I'm just like trying to like get a quick comment in. All right, no banging. All right, mute it again. So we can just get around it. Well, thank you. We'll do what we can. Yeah, I, I apologize for all this. It was not making noise before. I would have told you to record with somebody else if I knew it was going to be like this. But, you know, we're already down the rabbit hole. So it's already cool. Thank you. Cool. Thanks. Talk to you later. See ya. Okay, and we're back. So what happened for, for you listeners that don't know is that we took a several-hour break, and then we went and we listened in on the Apple earnings call. Mm -hmm. We wrote a couple of stories about it. We published about it. And now we're back to talk about what took place on that call so that you hear about it as soon as we do. Mm -hmm. There you go. Instant reaction. There we are. So first of all, the big news, right? The big news as I take away is that the iPhone 10, the iPhone 10, which the Wall Street Journal, which a bunch of others were saying was going to be down, was being cut back on supply orders and things like this. It was the top selling phone for every week that it's been available for sale. <laughs> am, I, am I right? Is that is that a good takeaway for starters? Yep, that is exactly right. Okay. So for anyone who was worried about 
the iPhone 10 not being a successful phone or being priced too high or any of the things that would cause orders to be cut or that would, would suggest that it was not doing well, that turns out to be, at least at large, not the whole story, that, that the phone is a successful phone, it's outsold the iPhone 8, it's been the top-selling phone. So what's the real news that I'm glossing over here? You know, the real news here is leading into this quarter, there was a lot of thought about this being a iPhone super cycle, right? Uh, a lot of anticipation for a brand new iPhone model, a lot of anticipation for a new design, the first time that they've gone with an edge-to-edge screen, all these things that they've done with the iPhone X. Uh, people were thinking that it was going to be a recreation of the iPhone 6 and 6 Plus cycle where Apple had never done jumbo-sized phones before and sales just went bonanza. Uh, and is that the definition of the word super cycle? Is, is it just that it's a, it's another iPhone cycle, but that it's so much more than any past history that it's we call it super? Yeah, they call it a super cycle because the idea is everyone who already had one upgrades, but then people are switching to, so everything about it is just super, I guess. That's an investor thing. So uh, that was the idea that the iPhone 10 was going to just be some sort of um, combined with the iPhone 8 uh, was going to be something that was really going to drive unit sales. So what actually happened is interesting. Um, instead of seeing sales go up again this holiday quarter, the unit sales of the iPhone actually went down. Uh, but that was offset by uh, what was really interesting is, and the real story on this quarter is the average selling price of the iPhone. So in previous years and previous quarters, you'll see you know an average selling price of uh, you know, six hundred thirty dollars, six hundred fifty dollars, six hundred seventy dollars was you know it started creeping to toward that seven hundred dollar price point. Um, uh, when the plus size models came out with the uh, you know higher costs, now with the iPhone ten at a nine hundred ninety dollars nine dollar and up price point, your average selling price this quarter went up. Now it had never exceeded seven hundred dollars before. This quarter it was seven hundred and ninety six dollars. So. You're looking at taste it close to 800 close bucks. to 800 bucks. You're looking at just an absolutely massive spike in ASP on the iPhone. Wow. And so what you see is the the revenue that Apple posted was huge. It was its biggest quarter ever, bar none, even though the fact that iPhone sales were down, iPad sales were pretty much flat, just up a little bit and Mac sales were down. And those are the primary revenue drivers. Hmm. So an interesting quarter. Um the the Apple Watch appears to be doing well. We can't really talk about unit sales on that because uh, it's lumped in with Apple's other products business, um, which means it's also there with the AirPods, which are another product that appear to be doing well. Um, Apple did say a number of good things about the Apple Watch without getting into specifics. It was almost Amazon sales territory of saying, we sold better than before. Um, they did say that the Series 3 models are up to more than twice the volume of Series 2 a year ago. They're seeing double-digit growth. Uh, it was Apple Watch's best quarter ever, 50% growth in revenue and units. So overall, you know, a, a strong quarter for Apple, just not in the way people expected. A- analysts were expecting average selling price of iPhone maybe in the 750 range, um, and they were expecting a higher mix of the iPhone 8. Uh, what ended up happening was the iPhone 10. Uh, drew more buyers, but the overall number of buyers went down slightly. So do we have any speculation as to why that would be? I think that, you know, enough people wanted to buy the iPhone 10 that it pushed up ASP and revenue, but enough people thought the iPhone 10 was too expensive that the overall unit sales were down. I, that's the best explanation that I can come up with. Some people may have looked and said, yeah. well, I don't want to get an iPhone 8 with the iPhone 10 out there. And then they just decided they weren't going to buy this year and maybe wait till next year or something. Um, but I mean, in terms of Apple's bottom well, line, it doesn't matter. 
they're they're making money hand over fist, so they're doing all right. And in terms of the Mac, you know, that's a tough year over year comparison. The fact that it was down a little bit. You got to remember that a year prior was when they launched the new MacBook Pros with the new design, Touch Bar, USB C. Um, you know, this year they couldn't really, they didn't really have that level of excitement with the Mac. Um, and then the iPad uh, had been updated in previous quarters, so the low end iPad came in March, and then the iPad Pro came in June. So um, the fact that it was up only slightly uh, just reflected the fact that those didn't launch in the holiday quarter. Right. I feel like, and this is not scientific at all, but my my gut tells me that this is a year of people's wait and see, right? You know, the the devices that were no longer supported that Apple intentionally told everyone to to at least think about were the iPhone 5s and the iPhone 5Cs because they were the 32-bit devices and, and there was a definite push to go to 64-bit. And, you know, the iPhone 6 has been out for a number of years and and next year will be even older. So it feels like maybe next year is the year when people replace their iPhone 6 and go ahead and look at what comes after. And remember, next 10. year we're rumored to have this jumbo-sized 6.1-inch phone that doesn't have an OLED display. And that's going to be priced right. supposedly below the iPhone 10 levels, you know, maybe $800, $900 range. So maybe that's where they draw more people in too. Yeah, and, and there have been a number of offers from the U.S. carriers, you know, the uh, both T-Mobile and Verizon doing the the buy an iPhone and get as much as $699 off of your other iPhone which could mean free right. iPhone, essentially. Uh, you know, it, it takes some of these deals for U.S. folks to go ahead and change phones. I, I know that those deals aren't always available in other regions of the world where you're just simply expected to pay up your whole price of the phone at the get-go. But um, that's how we've historically done it. And so those things definitely influence what the cycle looks like. Yeah, I think that, you know, investors didn't really know how to take this. And if you're looking at after hours now, it's, uh, you know, 625 on the East Coast. Uh, the stock initially went down when people saw that the iPhone sales went down. And they also saw the guidance for next quarter, which wasn't as high as they expected. But now the stock's up almost six bucks. So up three and a half percent in after hours trading. And once the market kind of got over that, they were like, hey, Apple sold a boatload of phones and they're charging more than ever. So maybe maybe this company isn't doing so bad. Uh, so, yeah, it seems like investors, <laughs> you know, after that initial reaction and the surprise of the unit sales being down, realized, oh, this, this, I mean, how high can you go in for terms of phone sales anyhow? I mean, you can't grow forever. Well, and the the Q2 guidance that says to expect lower is um, is also probably influencing that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, right? the, the people were, uh, investors were expecting about $65 billion in revenue next quarter and Apple guided between 60 and 62. So what they're... I mean, you know, what's a few billion between friends? I, I wouldn't, you know, if you had 62, 62 billion That's and you true. let me one, I wouldn't feel bad about it. But yes, I, I understand why that would be. You know, it, it comes to the point where any kind of number change or any kind of miss um, sounds A lot of this is baked into right? the stock too, though, with all those rumors about the iPhone 10 not doing well and Apple cutting um, shipments and all that stuff. People kind of went from having these sky high super cycle expectations to coming back down to earth. And so you see that reflected in the stock in some ways, but now where the stock is at is going up. And that's because people were kind of expecting it. And then they saw some good news that they weren't expecting, which is, oh, ASPs are way higher than we thought they were going to be. Right. So the, what, what I, I guess I'm coming away with is that there are two ways to look at this, right? There's the the way that this is the best quarter ever and the iPhone 10 outsold 
every other phone for every week that it was available and all of this rosy kind of stuff. And, and the other side, and you know, the higher average selling price. And the other side of it is the things that, that slightly depressed it briefly. Right. And the truth is somewhere in the middle of those things. Yeah. I agree with that. I mean, when a company is making this much money, 88 billion in revenue in a quarter, it's hard to complain. I would say so. So what, what else should we know about this? What else should there be that we should make sure our listeners hear? Uh, you know, I think that, there's going to be some volatility in the near term as as investors wonder what's going to be coming this fall and what's going to happen. But, uh, you know, I think the health of the company is pretty good so far. Apple spent a lot of time talking about customer satisfaction, about how happy customers are and the highest level ever for the iPhone, 96% last quarter. You know, the state of the company is very good. Um, they're certainly doing, <laughs> they're doing pretty well. I think they'll be all right. And the active install base is 1.3 billion devices. That's 30% growth. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Um, we said best ever quarter. We said that the iPhone 10 has been selling fantastically. Um, the things that we didn't say so far were that the Apple watch saw its best ever quarter. You you mentioned that yeah. with 50% growth, uh, Apple pay coming right. to Brazil, which is just another part of this, this expansion to really make that change the way that retail operates or the way that payments and transactions right. in retail operate. Um, Brazil is not a small country. For it to catch on in Brazil would be a big deal, I think. Yeah, I think so. Uh, the company has $285 billion in cash. Uh, debt brings that down to around $163 billion or so. And $38 billion is going to go to the U.S. government when Apple pays the taxes on repatriating overseas funds. And they made it sound like they're going to make some big acquisitions because they're looking to make that position net neutral. So here, here's my thought on that. And you can tell me if I'm way off base. But I, I think having all this cash hoard is um, not helpful when it comes to stock pricing and stock expectations and looking at this kind of thing. And the reason that I think that is because that's an indicator of past success and, and not necessarily an indicator of future success. Right. And that's True. what this people who are buying and trading and, and trying to foresee the future or make estimates on, you know, what the what the value of a stock is, what the value of a company is are looking at. So, you know, Apple's always been quiet about the kind of acquisitions that it makes and been um, more aggressive in recent history than they were in the past about the kind of acquisitions that they would make. But having that cash on hand is is not as interesting or useful to investors than using it towards something. They would rather see acquisitions or, or you know, things that look like growth. Well, you talk about past success. I mean, here's the present success. They just had their best quarter ever, and they added more money to their pile than ever yeah, before. Yeah, but you got $285 billion in cash, and that's that's great. That's But what, are, what, what can you do to use that to fuel growth? Well, I, I don't know what they can do with that. I mean, you know, there's talk of, you know, buy Netflix, buy Tesla, do this, do that. Uh, you know, I mean, maybe. None yeah. of those <laughs> appeal to you, I can tell from the, not really, from the no. groan in the back of your throat, that guttural groan of, of Neil Hughes. That, that is not something that Apple would excel at in, in taking over a company of that size and trying to run it and integrate it to its own products. Um, I mean, you think about how they've run Beats. And that basically exists as its own entity with an Apple, right? Uh, the AirPods came out and they were not branded Beats. So um, the Power Beats three were branded Beats, but that's what I'm saying. I know Beats, I, Beats is its own you. brand, and then Apple is <laughs> yeah. its own brand. They're, they keep them separate, and they do it for a reason. And so, you know, if Apple were to make a 
acquisition the size of Netflix or, you know, make a play for Hulu or Tesla or I don't know, you know, some content or, or hardware buy, which is what everybody wants to see them do one or the other. Um, you'd have to think they would do pretty much the same thing, right? Just kind of let them run as their own entity under Apple, uh, be their own thing. There are only two entities that run as their own thing under Apple. Uh, they are Beats, as you say, and also FileMaker, right? Which God knows why anymore. But um, <laughs> they're good people who are FileMaker. I love I, honestly. No, no, no. FileMaker is a fine product. Yeah, and, it's and good. They're definitely good people over there. Yeah. But the strategy and what they're doing is is really strange because it's sitting there running as the same product that gets updated every so often. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had Bento, which was a fine consumer level thing, mm-hmm. and it got killed off. And and so I'm just not sure quite what to make of it anymore. It is odd for a company that is so consumer focused like Apple to still be in that business. Um, but I, I mean, you know, it's not my thing. I frequently not- wonder if Apple remembers they still have it because kind of <laughs> it's not I mean, my it thing. It doesn't cost but- them anything comparatively. And yeah. so it's still just kind of hanging out there. Yeah, it probably People makes still a- coming into work, guys. I don't know. Probably makes but- a profit for them, but I can't imagine that it's moving the needle at all. Not at all. So. And, and Beats was purchased because of the customer base, who they could reach that they weren't necessarily reaching before. Well, and it also laid like the groundwork for Apple Music because the Beats yes. Music uh, service. Because it brought Andre and, and – The licenses and the structure for the streaming and all that. There were a lot of reasons for that. Yes. So, you know, but, but historically, every other acquisition that they've made has been about buying something that makes their product better. Right. Whether it was the Fingerworks keyboard that became the touchscreen on the iPhone, or you know the the PrimeSense and and other acquisitions that became the um, the 3D cameras for uh, for for Face ID, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of these acquisitions, but they they really end up to augment something. You know, that's when when Steve Jobs was pursuing Dropbox, he was pursuing it to beef up iCloud. Well, Tim Cook made a comment during today's call where he was talking about people buying new phones, selling their old ones, and somebody else buying a phone. And he was saying he's fine with that. He doesn't care that Apple doesn't get the money from the sale of a resold phone. He said as long as people are getting on the iPhone and using the ecosystem, he doesn't care. And you see that in the growth of the services business. That's from people subscribing to Apple Music. That's from people downloading and buying apps from the App Store. Um, you know, all of the services that Apple sells are intrinsical to the iPhone experience. You have to play in that walled garden. You have to use Apple services. Not in every case, but certainly, for example, in just buying apps, you got to do it, right? Uh, certainly, you could do Spotify or or Google Play Music or whatever on your iPhone, right? Uh, but if you're on the iPhone, you're going to be giving them your credit card number. You're going to be using services like the App Store, maybe Apple Pay, that sort of stuff. So, um, God forbid you should just want to back up your iPhone. And then that makes you more iCloud. <laughs> that 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 makes you more likely if you are getting a new phone in the future to buy an Apple product. So it's a smart strategy by by Tim to look at the big picture and not worry so much about lost sales on you know resold iPhones or hand me downs or something like that. Um, certainly, okay, yes, you could be making money off of those people, but those are the kind of people that aren't going to be paying full price for an iPhone anyhow. So what does it matter? Right. And and the people who benefit from a hand-me-down or, or a second-hand phone are the people that would otherwise, if they were going to buy a new one, were going to look at an SE or were going to look elsewhere. Right. So it's in, a in either case, it was, yeah, this is a, a positive gain. Yeah, exactly. 
Now, we were talking about ARKit earlier, and and one of the things that Cook mentioned on here that kind of surprised me was that there are 2,000 ARKit apps in the App Store. Yeah, that was a little surprising. And, you know, we, we published on the site a little earlier today about the idea of ARKit 1.5, that there are going to be improvements coming that are going to make ARKit more useful and more impressive. So there's there's something to look forward to there that we weren't necessarily being as optimistic about. But I, I think where this stuff goes is in places that you don't necessarily notice, right? ARKit was being shown off as being a games platform, and it still could be. But when I was at CES, we were talking about using it for things like architecture and for interior design. Yeah. And and surely that's where the IKEA catalog has come from. You know, IKEA for years has done a, a virtual catalog where everything's been renders. They haven't actually shot any physical furniture in years. And the ARKit version of that is they can drop furniture into your house and you can kind of see where it is and fit it, see what fits with your interior design. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So there, there are things where... Instead of something that's game-changing and grabs you by the throat and says, go get your new iPhone 8 because you're going to do ARKit, it's one of these things where it's subtle and it just starts integrating with stuff you already do over time. Yeah, I think it'll be a little bit of a slow creep. Um, I haven't been very impressed with any of the ARKit options out there. Um, I feel like in practice they don't work as well as I'd hoped. Um, They can be a little uh, jittery, a little buggy. Um, And so I have a problem with scale. Because, mm-hmm, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll detect a flat surface and then I'll put something down there and it will be comically oversized or comically undersized for what I was trying to place in the environment. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think that's one demo. And I think, you know, in practice, I saw a, a video proposing uh, using AR kit and the camera to recognize items on a bookshelf and then be able to find that online and make it something I could purchase. And that's sort of an augmented reality thing, too. Because the the phone is now overlaying the shopping experience onto what the camera sees. I mean, an emoji is an is a true success, and that's a form form of augmented reality as well. So instead of carpool karaoke, I just want a TV show of animoji karaoke. <laughs> well, it's funny is uh, uh, I think it was Harry McCracken is the one who started the animoji thing. Yes. Yeah. And in order to do it, you have to jump through a bunch of hoops. You have to turn on screen recording and then crop well, it. No, and- no, no. There is a guy who made an app that allows you to do it more easily. But anyhow, what's funny about it is, you know, when when Harry McCracken first started doing it, it caught on on Twitter. Um, everybody was jumping through these hoops. They're doing the screen recording and all that. And now Apple has these commercials showing like basically extended Animoji things that are longer than the 10 second limit and all that. And you have to like, you know, have the sound, the song downloaded and then sync up the clip yourself and do all that stuff. It's actually a lot of work to make one of them. Um, and so it's like, it's almost like, you know, you think iOS 11.3, you're putting this in your commercials. It's clearly a hit. Just make it its own app. Right. And then I'm saying someone else right, did but that Apple like hasn't a day done after. <laughs> a day after McCracken showed that it was possible, this other guy went ahead and started figuring out how to do it. There's a GitHub project for this. And but is it on the app store? Because like the, the Animoji are just characters within messages. You can't like, it's not accessible I, to other apps. I think... It's either on the App Store, and I don't remember what it is, or you have to take his GitHub project, throw it through Xcode, and then you can load it on your device. Right. But one of these kind of rigmaroles. But it it was very cool because it let you really access longer than that 10-second limit and the whole thing. Right. No, I I think that that's something. I I agree with you. Apple should go ahead and make it available, especially if they're making the commercial because they know it's fine. I think up until a couple of years ago, we still had the stupid photo booth app on every iPad. So. You know, if they could have left that around for that long, we can have an Animoji app for a couple of years. I until still we have the Photo Booth app on my uh, on my Mac here. Right so. there, you go. There you <laughs> can go. we can we get some video of you in, uh, riding a roller coaster, please? 
Uh, no, but you will find me in front of the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, but, but the, the thing about Photo Booth, and I'm just going to say this because I like saying, years ago, when it first came out, I did use it for real stuff. Back then, it was possible to take your photo booth kind of stuff and and put it into iChat video sessions, iChat AV sessions. Mm -hmm. And so, I did green screen with it where I could go ahead. I had a company backdrop that I taped up to the wall. And I green screen. No, I had a green screen that I taped up to the wall. And then I put the company backdrop over the green screen. And I did iChat AV with the company background behind me whenever I was doing com company mm -hmm. calls. It was very cool. And... The other thing is that you could do it through uh, Quartz Composer. You could modify the plugins through Quartz Composer and make your own. And so I had the ones that made you look like you were the hologram from Star Wars A New Hope and, and things like that. It was totally fun to be able to mess with Quartz Composer and do that stuff. Yeah, that's cool. And that was something that was possible with Photo Booth and with iChat AV. And, and it's one of those things that's kind of lost now. The, the early the augmented wayside. reality. Very. Absolutely. Now we just get, you know, picture of us hanging out in there a fishbowl. Yeah. All right. Parting thoughts, Neil. What should we know? Uh, you know, I think that, that, that Apple's doing fine. Um, I don't think anybody really needs to worry. <laughs> um, that's that's Neil's best way of saying best holiday season yeah, ever. Yeah. I do, I do want to give a shout out to Jonathan Morrison, YouTuber. Um, we kind of ragged on him a few weeks ago because of his iMac Pro review. Um, he has followed it up and he tweeted at us today with uh, – uh, some benchmarks of the iMac Pro. I, I will note, uh, well after Apple Insider's YouTube channel published its benchmarks of the iMac Pro. Oh, come <laughs> on. Jonathan's stuff is great. Have you seen his video? No, it's no, awesome. he, he did a really good job. And, and kudos Dude, to him. His, but we, we gave him a hard time when his first iMac Pro video came out because he was showing it with We him. never gave, we should never have given Why him not? a hard time. I uh, never well, gave him a hard fine. time. He got a, he got a no. embargoed iMac Pro and then showed it off on a desk. Um, and we were saying, you know, let's see some tests and some benchmarks. So he followed up and let us know via Twitter that he did, he did do some benchmarks with it. And it was a cool looking video. He did a really nice job on it. So props to Jonathan Morrison. Um, and I'll also apologize to the listeners for some of the noise today between the construction going on in my building and my cat, uh, being loud. It is her 19th birthday. So try to give her a break today. Happy birthday to your cat. Thank you. <laughs> Neil Hughes, where can people find your cat on the internet? Uh, my cat doesn't really have an internet presence because I'm not that kind of person, but you can find me. Um, I'm on Twitter at this is Neil. Uh, if you're looking for cat photos, don't follow me because you won't get any. But if you want to tweet at me and complain to me or ask me a question or just tell me how much you like the show, that would be cool too. I'm at this is Neil on Twitter and you can read me on Apple Insider. I'm at V Marks and I will be writing on Apple Insider also. And you know, you can uh, go ahead. Uh, all, all my best friends and all the favorite people, uh, including all of you handsome listeners, leave great reviews for our show over at iTunes, and we're so thankful for it. And I hope we continue to do that, and we will be back next week with more. This episode is brought to you by Pitney Bowes. No matter what you send or how often, Pitney Bowes has your sending solution. Print postage from your office and take advantage of special discounts such as saving three cents per letter versus the price of a stamp. Plans start as low as $5 per month. Visit pb.com insider to learn more and sign up for a free trial. That's pb.com slash insider. Terms apply. See site for details.